This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as Donald Trump's skincare consultant. He looks good to me, but then again, I'm always wearing shades. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Dan Pfeiffer, the co-host of the Crooked Media podcast, Pod Saves America, and former senior advisor to President Obama. He's also the author of a new book called Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. In it, he explains how Democrats can defeat President Trump at the ballot box in November. But he says only doing that won't fix a much larger problem, the broader Republican Party and what it is doing to democracy. Dan, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So we're recording this a day before Super Tuesday. And what a day. Today is like a perfect day. I mean, yes. Mayor Pete leaves, Amy Klobuchar leaves. Everything is, is like moving very quickly yeah. in the dem- in this race right now. And it's quite early on in, I would say, early on in the in the process. Maybe not from your perspective. Um, I want to get your book, but I want to get your take on what's happening today. What's going on? I think the narrow paths of the candidates are making it very clear that the— f- that it became, I think, clear based on how Joe Biden did in South Carolina that this really came down to really only him and Bernie Sanders who had a legitimate chance to have, like, a real delegate lead heading into mm-hmm. the convention. And Klobuchar, uh, Amy Klobuchar, and people just sort of recognized that. And particularly for Amy Klobuchar, whose state is on the ballot on Tuesday, mm-hmm. and her main talking point is she's never lost an election in Minnesota. Right. I think there was some risk of that on Tuesday, that she mm-hmm. could lose that her state to Minnesota. And so we're seeing quick consolidation into a race that— primarily between Sanders and Biden, mm-hmm. with these two X factors looming out there with Elizabeth Warren still— On still, the Sanders side, sort of the Sanders— I think that's an open question. Right. A lot of—in the polling I've seen, Warren support is, at best, 50-50, Sanders someone else. Right. But that someone else had been Pete a lot, mm-hmm. um, had been, could be, could have had been Klobuchar, whether it means it'll be 50-50 Biden-Sanders, so I'm a question. Mm-hmm. And then you have the half-billion-dollar question of Mike Bloomberg— mm-hmm and what impact he's going to have going forward. Right. And so how do you look at it? What are you, where are we? I think that right now, Bernie Sa- in, the, in one of the grand ironies of American history, Bernie Sanders' best friend is Michael Bloomberg mm-hmm. because his presence in the race is making it much more likely that Bernie will come out of Super Tuesday with a very large delegate lead. Because? Because basically Michael Bloomberg has purchased, you know, 10 to 15 percent of support in all so these states. Biden. It, it seems to be almost overwhelmingly hurting Biden, mm-hmm. and both in the states that Bernie's going to win, it's keeping Biden's margin down, and in the states that Biden is going to win on Tuesday, it's keeping his win margin down, mm-hmm. therefore meaning that 
Biden will get fewer, Bernie will get more delegates from the states he wins, and Biden will get fewer delegates from the states he wins, and putting Bernie potentially, depending on how all this goes on Tuesday night, into a very strong position heading into the convention. All right, so talking about the convention, and then I want to get to the untrumping mm-hmm. of America, how we change this. What does that set up be? They keep they keep talking about a, a convention that's brokered. I, I don't think that's going to happen. That's not a thing. There are that no never brokers. Ha- that doesn't happen anymore, yeah. right? Well, it's, there's no brokers, right? right. There are no— like, there's no back room. Mm-hmm. If there was a back room, there would be no smoke in it. And there is no – so a contesting convention and a broker convention are two different things. Brokered suggests that some group of power brokers put together a coalition right. of delegates against a majority. Which happened mean, in the past. It, has, it happened, but has not happened since we changed the primary system in 1972 to mm-hmm. avoid that. Mm-hmm. What you could have is a contested convention, which has also never happened where the delegates just pick. After the first ballot, you go to the second ballot, and and then it's a Mm free-for-all. Everyone can vote for who anyone they wanted to vote for. And the rules are incredibly complicated, but I don't think power brokers will necessarily be involved. It'll be the capacity of whoever the leading candidates are then to persuade people that they are the best chance to beat Trump. And then why wouldn't there be a contested election? Why wouldn't there be a contested convention? Mm-hmm. The only reason why I think it would not happen is one of the two candidates, as we sit here today, the day before Super Tuesday, that person is most likely to be Bernie if it is anyone, has a big enough lead that the convention does not want to take – doesn't want to take the, the nomination away from the person with the most votes. Right. I think that is the most likely thing to happen. I, th- I find it – unless it is like six delegates here or there is some sort of – event that raises gigantic questions about who the nominee is that comes out long after the process, mm-hmm. I would be very surprised if the nominee is someone other than the person with the most delegates. With the most delegates, which seems to be Bernie Sanders. Seems most likely to be Bernie, although this race is narrowed much faster, and I think all the models suggest that Bernie is most likely to be that person. It seemed overwhelmingly so. Biden now, I think, has a shot to do it if he gains strength because the race is consolidated so quickly, we're just having—we've had two candidates drop out by lunch West Coast time. Right, and then—but you still have Bloomberg. Still have Bloomberg, and will Bloomberg be Bloomberg. in the race after Super Tuesday if he does not win any states is an open question. What is Elizabeth Warren going to do, mm-hmm. um, and what impact will that have on some of these states down the line? And there are a couple of states for Biden that are really important coming up after this one, most notably Florida and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Florida. Some polling shows that Sanders suffers mightily in Florida. There was actually a poll last week that had him— under the 15% threshold. Cuba. Because potentially be Cuba. There's a never been a super strong state for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the poll was taken in his defense in the middle of the Cuba, the Cuba sort of what I think Tempest in a teapot as it relates to mm-hmm. him. But if, if Biden were to clean up there, that is a state with a huge trove of delegates that would give him a shot to be in the game here. All right, I want to finish up. We now have so many vice presidential candidates everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> We've never had a better, better choice. Yeah. What, how does that shake out? It's going to be important, given these people are of a certain age. Yes, I saw the median age of presidential candidates is now 77.5, I think. (laughs) I feel so young. (laughs) 80 is the new 30. I I guess. It's unbelievable. Um, I think— 80 is the new 40. 70 is the new 30. Oh, is that what it is? Try to keep it together. All right, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's changing every second. It is. Um, I think the vice presidential pick is much more important substantively than politically. Mm -hmm. Like, vice presidential candidates don't deliver states. Mm -hmm. Um, they can provide some sort of ideological balance to the ticket or— People feel better about They feel them. better or you can screw it up, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, that's the Sarah Palin rule, right? Mm-hmm. You can absolutely—you can be a candidate of advanced age like McCain and then pick someone wholly and demonstrably unqualified for mm, the position. It started off good. Yeah. <laughs> that, those first two weeks were good. Week three, downhill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think that the question here is going to be 
I just have to imagine in a party that is majority female, getting younger and, and much more diverse, where the base of the party is African-American, Hispanics, and other voters of color, that if we have a male, white male nominee over the age of 70, you're going to have to provide some balance in the ticket. I was very interested to see that Bernie Sanders told the San Francisco Chronicle that he would not pick anyone who did not agree with him on Medicare for All, uh-huh. which I think is a v- really narrows the field very quickly of the sorts of people that you would – because you would think, I think, just sort of who could Sanders pick that would provide some of the stuff I just mentioned, like Kamala Harris would be high on that list, Stacey mm-hmm. Abrams would be high on that list, mm-hmm. Amy Klobuchar could be on the list, um, but all those people don't meet that test. Who does? I don't know. I mean, that's sort of – if you're looking for a female politician of color who's on that list, AOC is not – Old enough. Not old enough. Um so it could, you know, that could be Pramila Jayapal, I think would actually be a phenomenal vice presidential, vice president, mm-hmm. congresswoman from Massachusetts and have the Progressive Caucus. Um, but you get, a, you get, you shorten the list uh, pretty quick when you have that threshold. I also think the vice presidential nominee always just adopts the policies of the right. nominee. Yeah. So I don't know why you, that litmus test doesn't. He I, likes litmus tests. I guess, I guess that's it. He's a litmus know. test kind of guy. I guess. Just, it's a pure, it's purity politics, I guess. And I don't yeah. think that. If you're trying to unify the party, I'm not sure that's a necessary step yeah, to do that. Sure I wouldn't cut goal. my list. I'm not sure that's You don't think so? I kind of like him, but I can, he's very uh, inflexible. He strikes me as a very inflexible man. I don't mean to, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I— th- I think he likes to—the he, he, rep- rep- repetition on Cuba was unnecessary. Yeah, He I think, wanted to make his point the way it, someone's old grandpa does that. I think there's a lesson here that Obama had to learn, too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think— naturally more flexible than I think mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, but is sometimes that you have to play the game of politics because you're building a coalition. Yeah, I don't. And even though what Bernie said was verbatim, about Cuba, was verbatim what Obama said mm-hmm. in 2015 when yes. he went to Cuba, the reaction was, I think, disproportionate and correct. Well, it's because he's ha- been there, and there's pictures of him there, yeah. and the whole, there's history. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's tied, not unfair. It's, it's not. tied to the his choice to label himself a socialist, right. a democratic socialist. But sometimes you have to just... Do th- you have to acknowledge things you disagree with within, even just right. within your party mm-hmm. to unify the party? And so you can acknowledge the concerns that people upset about it without. That's not the same as surrendering your point. That's right. And he he could I definitely he think he could have done more to point. do that. Yeah. So getting to that, the idea that people do surrender mm-hmm. their themselves. Let's talk about the untrumping of America mm-hmm. and the Republican Party. Let's start first with the Republican Party. Where <laughs> are we? We are at the place where we have to understand that. Donald Trump is the new, nor- new normal in the Republican Party mm-hmm. and that he is not an aberration. There will be no epiphany. Lindsey Graham is not going to go back to three personalities ago. Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. is not going to work with anyone. This is who they are. We have to understand Trump in the context of the history of the Republican Party that has been getting more radical on racial grievance politics, sort of an inexorable path for a very long time that was, I think, catalyzed by the election of Obama. And mm-hmm. The next Republican will also be a billionaire-funded racial grievance politician with authoritarian instincts. It just mm-hmm. Trump is not unique in that way. He's just abnormal in his behavior, not abnormal in his profile. So explain that further. What does that look like? Well, ultimately, the Republicans made a decision originally in after the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. and Civil Rights Act that they were going to become the party of the white South. And that continued through— and that was a good political strategy for a long time because— Leatwater, that was that, yeah, went, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, but it 
the white vote, in particular the white South, was incredibly – that was a very fruitful place to be in politics. <laughs> and over time, as the demographics in the country have changed and has become more diverse, the, the – that has required the Republicans to get even more – blood from this shrinking stone of a white base. And what is that has required is ramping up the rhetoric around it, the fears around immigration in particular, but also terrorism and all of that. And there was a, there was a path, right, either after 2008 or after 2012 when Obama's large victories, sort, I think, sort of knocked them upside down and said, oh, the day they feared where demographic change was going to overtake their political power had come sooner than they thought. Mm-hmm. And so you could have done two things at that time. You could have done this. You could have said the only way we're going to see long term is broaden our appeal Mm -hmm. or double down on what has been working. And they chose to double down on what's working in part because the pressures in the base were such that, you know, they all remember after 2012, they all came out and said we're going to be even Sean Hannity in 2012 came out and said we'd be for immigration reform. Mm -hmm. The base revolted. They went back. This is the tail wag the dog here, I guess, by the way I say it. And. The key to that understanding that is what led to Trump is that strategy only works if, you, one, you amp up the racial rhetoric, but, two, you make American politics less democratic mm-hmm. because you have to both increase enthusiasm among your base, but then you also have to reduce the political power of the other party's base suppress. or you can't succeed. Yeah, it, is, it's, it has to be fear and suppression as a twin strategy, mm-hmm. and that is how we ended up in a place where Donald Trump became president with three million less votes. But also just to think about how effective that's, that um, – suppression strategy is, Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney by seven points mm-hmm. in Wisconsin in 2012. Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton by less than a point. But Donald Trump lost—Donald Trump got fewer votes than Mitt Romney in Wisconsin mm-hmm. because of voter suppression in that state affected the number of Democrats who could turn out, particularly in Milwaukee, which mm-hmm. was the whole—in Milwaukee, is Wisconsin, in many ways, the tip of the spear of the Republican efforts. Coke, it's Coke billionaire-funded efforts to reduce the power of— the Democratic base. So they've made this choice, and here they are. And what what's fascinating is how the reaction of Trump, what you're saying is he's not an aberration. Yep. And he's just a—his particular personality is an aberration, but what he represents is not an aberration. Right. And that's that, I think that has distracted a lot of Democrats mm-hmm. because he is so unique in his behavior. Yeah, that you react. All you do is react, react, react. You react, react to him, but you also seem like, well, maybe he— by force of personality or, or his tweets, has forced the Republicans to act this way. Mm-hmm. And that's not—they're not responding—maybe individually they respond on a day-to-day basis from a fear of a Trump tweet, but what mm-hmm. is driving their politics is the incentives of their strategy, and the, that will still exist the day after Trump is gone. And I think one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to try to make this case publicly to as many people as possible, because I think a lot of Democrats do not— they believe that Trump is an aberration. It's a very comfortable feeling, yeah. right? We're, oh, I don't think he is at all. Yeah, and, but, I th- you know, it's like you listen to my friend Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. He His first ad was Joe Biden is an aberration. He still mm-hmm. believes Republicans will have an epiphany. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, revolutionary as he is, still is more—he's more positive about the idea that you can work with Republicans, and you know this because he opposes getting rid of the filibuster, mm-hmm. than other Democrats. And right. you see it in Capitol Hill a lot. And I think we have—and it's hard for these senators because they eat lunch with these people and they mm-hmm. run on the treadmill next to them or right. maybe walk quickly on the treadmill next to them in the Senate gym. And it's hard to look at them and say, oh, you are you are the problem. Trump is not the problem, right? right. And, th- and so we need people to recognize that when Trump is gone, if we just beat Trump, we do nothing else, we're going to end up right back in this place four years from now, eight years from now. And what scares me about that is the next 
racial grievance authoritarian leading— Might be smarter. Much—like, has to be smarter, right? And certainly less likely to be distracted— by a Twitter fight with, like, Deborah Messing in the morning, right? He's, like, more likely— <laughs> It's good that he wants to do that. <laughs> yeah, we should be almost oh, grateful we're at laughing times. about it. Anyway, we're here with Dan Pfeiffer. He's the co-host of Crooked Media Podcast, Pod Save America, which is an enormous podcast. We're going to talk about that at the end. He was a former senior advisor to President Obama. He is also the author of a new book called Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. We're going to talk about that when we get back with him after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before— Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with Dan Pfeiffer from Pod Save America. He's written a book called Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. Just talking about the phenomena of Donald Trump. Now, talk a little bit about, though, I mean, he has used, you know, social media. He's used Twitter particularly. He's in kind of a hot mess, but he sort of has been using technological tools that make him different from other candidates because I don't think the Republicans saw him coming either. You know, you have no. that— if you, right now we're looking at all the Democrats across the stage, but that was there was a large Republican stage that did not see him coming, I think, in a lot of ways, even if he's inevitable. Right. I think Donald Trump is generally a willfully ignorant moron, mm-hmm. but I think he's a marketing mm-hmm. genius. Okay. And I, I often – I think – his gut for a media environment, it's what is its gut. It's instinctual, not intellectual. I don't think mm-hmm. he has sat, looked at, and like, there's data. no whiteboard. There's no, there's no data. data. There's nothing. It's there's just— no data dashboard. He's like, ah, <laughs> he, today he, I shall attack Deborah Messinger, perhaps. <laughs> Valerie Jarrett's my— <laughs> He has two experiences that I think make him perfectly attuned to the media environment we live in. One, he grew up in the tabloid culture of New York City. Mm-hmm. And two, his most recent experiences in reality television. And that, I think, makes him fully understand this idea about the media environment now, which is content is king. Mm -hmm. You have to be doing – you have to get as much attention for yourself as possible all the time so that you can drive the conversation all the time. And there is this world – like one of the most annoying sayings is like all PR is good PR. Mm -hmm. But I think that is somewhat true Mm -hmm. in this media environment, particularly for someone like Trump. And he – He's just constantly out there, and he is driving the conversation. He's still driving the conversation. And there's both—it's a combination of three things that make this very hard for Democrats. One is Trump has, like I said, a gut instinct for what gets attention, right? right. What the inflammatory yeah, thing is. Yeah, it's completely interesting. He, two, he is existing in a, in a Facebook-driven media environment where— the sort of content he does is sort of like pushing on an open door on the Facebook algorithm because it generates outrage. And the third thing is, because he's interesting, because he drives clicks, 
he can function as the nation's assignment editor because in a digital ad economy, you're always going to double down on the things that get attention. And that's not even a critique of the media. Like, they go, like, it's also the readers. That's what they Mm -hmm. want. And so it creates this cycle where he's constantly dominating the conversation. By dominating the conversation, it's very hard for the Democrat, whoever he's running against or the message we're trying to get out, to get enough oxygen to grow. Well, talk about that because you were in the Obama administration, mm-hmm. and these this is when these companies, I don't, you were not mm-hmm. particularly in charge of this yeah. particular part of it, but you all were aware of the growing power of these companies and did nothing about it, really did no, made no moves. So how do you look back at that era? Well, like as you point out, I'm not involved or an expert in regulatory right. Right. power. Um, it seems very clear to me that more can and needs to be done mm-hmm. to look at these companies, right? I sort of remember the moment we discovered that f- sort of the tipping point of Facebook in our politics, mm-hmm. sort of in the media environment of our politics, because we used to do these things where we would, there'd be some scandal in Washington, everyone would be all worked up about it, it would lead playbook, cable mm-hmm. news would do, would do a thing, with them. you know, Chuck Todd would be upset about it on TV, and then We'd go talk to voters, and they would have not a clue what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Just their lives were so disconnected. There was nothing sure. that was putting that information in front of them. And then around, like, 2013, mm-hmm. we had this the IRS, the sort of faux IRS scandal where a group of IRS workers in the Cincinnati office had given, been reported to have given additional scrutiny to Tea Party groups. Mm-hmm. Washington went insane, echoes of Watergate, despite no evidence connecting it to Obama, big deal. I was very confident that voters would not know about it. We went and we talked to voters, and they only not they knew everything about it, mm-hmm. but they knew it in this very right wing frame, mm-hmm. which was very clear when you ask them when and it's Facebook. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. the that was this tipping point where the combination of the right wing content machine and Facebook was putting information in front of voters, mm-hmm. and like whether there is something on a regulatory way to go back that could have been done to sort of address that thing, I do mm-hmm. not know. Mm-hmm. I think. As I sit here today and I think about what a the next Democratic presidency should do, there are a couple of things that I think are very important. One is we need to pass more laws, at least in the terms of politics, to bring our political advertising up into the digital world. Where it, Right now we're requiring right, it's a Facebook and Google to self-police, right. which even if they're doing the things as they claim – that well, are in not. the laws. Each of them are deciding a different thing. Twitter right. is deciding di- something different than Google, which is deciding right. something very different from Facebook. Yeah. And we need, so there needs to be laws to govern that as we've mm-hmm. had laws that governed it for TV for decades. And I think there there has to be real, someone has to look very carefully at the fact that the largest social media messaging platforms in the world all are owned by the same person mm-hmm. and what that means. And I think, I definitely think that all of this caught Democrats in particular by surprise. And I remember thinking, and I write about this in the book, when I remember when Hillary Clinton gave this economic speech mm-hmm. in 2015, and she made a passing dig, which was completely 100% fair, at sort of the Ubers, lifts of the world for mm-hmm. the gig economy, right. right? And people went insane. And a lot of Democrats went insane because we had taken real pride in in our view that we were the technocrats. The, yeah, we were, yeah, we were on the cutting edges. We understood where this yeah. was going, and we were wrong. And Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton was actually right. She's often right She about is very much. Very, I did many interviews yes. back then. She was way on. She was ahead very ahead of, of that. Yeah. And, and, like, we have to—we are too dependent on—like, the connections between the party and Silicon Valley are different now than they were two or three years ago, and there's yeah. obviously much more of acknowledgement. But it has been very intertwined, both in terms of funding source and— post-political career 
location, right? Right, right. I think one of the things is that I think what Democrats have missed, and we can talk more about your book Mm. in terms of the untrumping, is that they continue to lose at the digital game, the Democrats. And you just look at Facebook's, we were just talking to Kevin Mm. Roos from the New York Times, the top 10 stories on Facebook are always from the right wing, whether it's Ben Shapiro, whether it's Daily Caller, whether it's Fox News, Mm. they dominate social media. They sort of dominate Twitter in a lot of ways, or at least they mm. certainly are getting their digs in, and they're constantly gaming the system. And there's not much of a response on the left side in that amount of aggression, which I think is really interesting. And then when there is aggression, people lose, clutch their pearls and lose their friggin' minds yep. over being just as aggressive. And so what happens is we're constantly getting gamed by the right wing— and then we're constantly not willing to do the same thing on the other side. I mean, it's a really interesting—the question is, do you fight fire with fire, or do you fight fire with, like, indignancy, which I don't think it works. Right. 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 It is sort of surprising. I mean, take yourself—people can take themselves back to 2012 after Obama mm-hmm. beat Romney. The view was Democrats were crushing the Republicans yes, in all parts were. of the digital space. They never right? And what that led to was some complacency on behalf of the Democratic Party— we sort of rested on our laurels because people thought they would not catch up, mm-hmm. and they did. And I think there's a couple that, like a couple different points I think you said. One is like the Kevin Roos tweet with the ten mm-hmm. stories always being mm-hmm. right wing is like haunts me. Mm-hmm. And there and so like how would a democratic like how would progressives writ large address that? Right? Like part of it is so much of this world is is quantity. Right? It's mm-hmm. like what you are pumping into the ecosystem. And Republican billionaire donor types are funding these content organs, and they have been for a long time. That's where Breitbart came from. Early it's where on, because Bacon. they were left out of the regular media. Right. They've been doing it since Ralph Reed a million right. years ago. And they have really ridden a wave in the last few years as it relates to Facebook. And there is very little of that happening on the left. And you even see it like, a, like a, you look at sort of what do wealthy – when wealthy Democratic progressives – do when they want to get into media, they don't build some digital machine that is op- is really sort of a billionaire-funded mm-hmm. political messaging operation. They buy The Atlantic. They buy Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. They, I don't, I don't know that I'll call Jeff Bezos a liberal, but they buy The Washington Post, right? Mm-hmm. They're buying these old media, old world media records, which is, that is good. We need those things as well, but there's very little been right. of sort of progressive digital media infrastructure being built up. A lot of the Democratic digital investment has been on the app and tech side, right, right, and less of it on the media side. So what has to happen in that? Right? I'm sorry to go into tech, but of I mean course. one of the untrumping is this ability to control information yeah. and, and to be able to, unfortunately, manipulate people to your. I don't want to use the word manipulate. Yeah. Persuade. Let's yeah. use the word persuade. Yes. And one of the things is the use of these tools. I don't think it's. I mean, I wrote a column about this. Mm. It's they were left out of the other media environment, and so they they have thrived in this one. And they're also willing to do anything and use any tool. And there is a reticence on the part of. Democrats, I think, to go ugly, to go ugly in this area. Now, look, Bloomberg is doing it, and everyone's criticizing him. I'm like, spend away, sir. Like, it's great. Yes. Like, that seems like a good idea to me. You know, I think the way Bloomberg is spending money, you know, obviously he has spent hundreds of million dollars on television ads, mm-hmm. and that has been effective for him in going from zero to wherever mm-hmm. he is, as we said today. The things he's been doing in terms of, like, hiring meme makers and content producers to to do stuff— is very interesting, and it, like, and he's the one person who has the ability to do it. Every other campaign's got to choose. Right. Should we run a television ad, right. or should we hire these meme makers to do something? Right. 
And the culture and the economics within a campaign usually push them to the more the safer yes. bet, which is, sure. I think, a mistake. Bloomberg doesn't have to choose. He can right. do all the above. But what we have to do is we we need a infrastructure that exists outside of presidential elections, mm-hmm. right? We need to – and I think there are gaps that Democrats can fill. And I do think we have to be careful. We have to understand that our voters – are different than Republican voters in their media diets. So you look at that annual Pew survey of people's media consumption diets, the Republican, the diets of people who identify as Republicans and conservatives is Fox, Rush Limbaugh, and the Drudge Report, mm-hmm. right? And then insert, like, Free Beacon or mm-hmm. Breitbart here. Democrats is, like, NPR, people love NPR, but then it is ABC, NBC, CNN. And so we, I don't think we we have to have a slightly different approach, but we need to create entities that are—they don't even have to be huge. They can even be micro-targeting well, at specific audiences. Well, I think audiences. Bernie is. I think Bernie's that, got a lot of them. They've Ber- got amazing podcasts. They've got all kinds of things that are, of course, you know, people have problems with. Well, I think that Bernie Sanders—I think one of Bernie Sanders' best electability arguments is that he had—he—at he, least his people. I don't know—I don't have a full sense of what Bernie Sanders is sophisticated in the media, but his people— understand the need to have an alternative media ecosystem. And that is what The Intercept is about. That's what the DSA publications are about. That's what Chapo Trap House is about. Mm. And whether you like or dislike individual ones, he has been able to survive in this election through some of the ups and the, the media narrative shifts that have felled other candidates who are dependent upon the New York Times, MSNBC, or anyone else to get their message out because they have these groups of people who are pushing content. And that's on top of a very fired-up group of people who are digitally and creatively inclined who are creating content on mm-hmm. their own. And, like, we, like the rest of the party has to learn a ton of lessons from how Bernie Sanders has done this because both in, you know, the way he has fostered that environment, like, I think about some of the interviews he does are very mm-hmm. specific to yes. lifting up these progressive alternative entities. And that, like, we should be, like, the other people should be doing that. We shouldn't just always turn to Rachel Maddow mm-hmm. or Pod Save America or anyone right. else. Like, sh- are there other people you can lay hands on, mm-hmm. give them attention, and foster them? Because we're all going to benefit from a stronger progressive media ecosystem. Right. It's interesting. Someone's like, why isn't Bernie trying to start talking to you? I was like, why would he? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. He's trying to reach a certain person. And yeah. I, I may have some of those people, the tech bros kind of thing, but maybe not. It's really interesting. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about what the plan is to make democracy, mm-hmm. democracy again, mm-hmm. America democracy again. We're here with Dan Pfeiffer from Pod Save America. His book is called Untrumping America. I want to find out what that means when we get back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles, and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Dan Pfeiffer, former Obama administration official. You were you did uh, press. What what would you say you did? Strategery. I, I was the communications director for the first term, and yeah. then in the second term, I was senior advisor, which is like a combo role of politics, communications, and sort of general presidential advising. So strategery. Really. Strategery. Yeah, strategery. I guess strategery. Yes. Yeah. Uh, do you miss being in politics? You you, know, you have this podcast thing now going. I, on. I do like. I do. At times, I do. Like, right. I, like we were in Iowa with Positive America was in Iowa for the few days before the caucus. And obviously, I have a lot of fond memories mm-hmm. of that of 2008 in Iowa with Obama. And I was pretty envious of the staff who were back there, you know, like yeah. coming in with the candidates. And so I do miss parts of that. There are elements of it I do not miss. Um, and I enjoy sleeping a little bit more than I used mm-hmm. to and being less stressed than I was. Right. But I thought I was going to leave the White House in quit politics and be done with it and mm-hmm. go on to other things. And it turns out I, it's a thing I love. But it's you a, did. You went off and you did a GoFundMe. You worked at GoFundMe. I did. Uh, and then you didn't, and you did the podcast thing. Yeah, so I, I left the White House in 2015, and I remember when I was leaving, I was talking to President Obama, like, on my last day, and he said to me, and what was unhelpful, I think, mm-hmm. uh, he, he was asking me what I was going to do, and I honestly had no idea. I had no plan beyond find a candidate I love, mm-hmm. work in the White House, and have this experience. Mm-hmm. And so as I don't really know, and he said to me, he goes, you, he's like, how old are you? And I was 39 at the time, and he's like, I'm 39. He's like, you know, it's we- it's a weird age because you're kind of too young to coast on the laurels of what we did together, <laughs> and you're kind of too old to start something new. He's so obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> I understood how yes. obnoxious that man was. <laughs> and so I— that really kind of fired me up that I would try something new mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be one of those people who coasted on what I did before, even though so that's— So you came to Silicon Valley, as came, many I moved, Obama administration I moved, people. I have. actually moved out to San Francisco because my wife, my now wife, is from the East Bay. We had a debate about New York or San Francisco. She won the debate. We moved here. I wasn't even intending to work in Silicon Valley first. I was going to do some—I was doing some consulting, some, some tech, some non-tech, mm-hmm. and uh, I ended up working at GoFundMe, and I was there for— Almost two years. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it was sort of like, I'm going to try something new, and I'm going to, like, get into tech. I'd never done anything in my life other than campaigns and government since right. the day I graduated from college. And I thought, and I th- sort of thought in my head, and this is sort of how wrong I was, I was done with politics. Hillary Clinton would get elected. Barack Obama's legacy was safe. Everything was fine. I, I would do something else. And then two things happened. Hillary Clinton did not win, spoiler alert. And then Pod Save America, which we had done this, uh, John first, originally John Favreau and I, and then Love It and Tommy joined it in this podcast with Bill Simmons, mm-hmm. Keeping a 600, which was just a hobby. It was like, we're going to do this for a few months during the election. It's a chance to talk about politics. Mm-hmm. It's fun. And what we sort of assumption was if Hillary won, we would probably stop. 
Mm-hmm. Like we had this – Obama had promised us an interview after the election. So we mm-hmm. figured we would do the Obama interview, mm-hmm. wrap this thing up, and then John and Tommy would go back to their consulting firm. Love it would go back to writing TV and movies, and I would go back to working at GoFundMe. And then the two things happened is they started Crooked Media in Pot Save America – took off in that environment, mm-hmm. and Trump won, and I, I couldn't, it's like, it just, the, the pull of politics was too much, and I wanted, and they had some really, John, John, and Tommy had some really interesting ideas about how to leverage our platform mm-hmm. for activism, and I got sucked out of tech and back into politics, and I'm, mm-hmm. as much as I really enjoyed working at GoFundMe and the people who work there were great, that, like, this is sort of, feel like, I feel like where I need to be. To stay sane, right? In this to do, world. to have other voices, and the, yeah. the growth of podcasts has been fascinating. Yeah, in terms we of we, voices. Were, we we picked the right time to you start. You did absolutely. Yes. So you're writing this book, though you're moving into books. The untru- that's that is what you talk about on yeah. uh, on on the pod, which is the untrumping America. Yeah. What, How does that happen? In the, I divide the book into three sections. One is who the Republicans are, which we talked about, because mm-hmm. I think that's very important to sort of right. knock people over side the head with the two-by-four about this. Mm-hmm. Second is how do we beat Trump? And we can talk about that. But the third thing, and the reason why I really wrote the book, because if it was just how we beat Trump, that was – that's not going to – that's not something that's going to be um, – there's not, that's not evergreen, right? But it, the real reason was beating Trump is not enough, that if we don't – if Democrats do not make – Fixing our politics and democratic reform at the center of our party, we're just going to operate in a world where Mitch McConnell, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh control the policy in America for the next 30 to 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure in the world of climate change that that's a thing that we can survive. Mm -hmm. And so Democrats have to understand that both the institutions of politics in the context of the Senate Electoral College are fundamentally biased against us for a long time. And second, Republicans have ruthlessly exploited the laws to diminish the power of our progressive majority. And that mm-hmm. is through a combination of voter suppression, gerrymandering, campaign exploiting campaign finance loopholes, and rigging the courts. And if we don't take on each and one of those, those things, it doesn't matter whether we nom- nominate a candidate who's for Medicare for all, Medicare for some, mm-hmm. Medicare for one additional person in America. None of those things are happening. And so we have to take on the institutional barriers to progressive policy. And I think that the biggest is, as we think about it, like this is the path America is on and it's getting worse every day, which is the the country, it's a growing, progressive, younger, diverse majority that is going to be governed for as far as the eye can see by a shrinking conservative, mostly white minority. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think that is sustainable to the country, and I don't think it's mm-hmm. sustainable to the policies we care about. It's certainly not sustainable in a world in which the planet is melting. And if we don't take on just the basic ideas of how Republicans have power right now, the solution to climate change is dependent upon 8 to 10 Republicans doing the right thing. Right. And there's no evidence of anything that's happened in the last 20 years to suggest that's possible. So we're basically deciding, if we're going to abide by politics as they are, we're basically deciding that we're just going to let climate change take its toll, mm-hmm. and do nothing else. Mm-hmm. Some people feel like that's the, how it's got to go. Like, that's how revolutions happen in terms of— I think your, your point of this increasingly progressive urban-based, mm-hmm. as technology increases, people are going to be living in cities yep. more than rural areas, clearly, as they're going to have these mega cities, And that will have all its issues around technology and privacy and things like that. But And you will have this overclass of conservatives. Yep. That doesn't not break— Correct or not? Or does it have to wait until it breaks? I think I think we have to break it. Right. right. We have to do stuff to address it because 
one of the things that I is I look back on our time in the Obama years, and I think we did things the best job we could. We did things overwhelmingly right, but we, there's some things we missed. And one of the things we missed is that really not just during Obama years, but for a long period of time, Democrats have – we are uncomfortable with political power. Mm-hmm. We are uncomfortable with wielding it. We're uncomfortable with acquiring it. And we have to recognize that we have to change how we do things. We have to be more aggressive. And I always think back to – we had 60 senators briefly while Obama was president, and every every one of them agreed that D.C. should be a state. We never even had a real debate in the Congress, internally or externally, about making D.C. a state because it seemed like dirty pool. Because mm-hmm. D.C. is a state that votes 90-10 Democratic in a presidential election. These are clearly two Democratic senators, probably two very progressive Democratic senators. Mm-hmm. And we never thought about it because we sort of – we were too – we didn't – we felt uncomfortable with doing something but just give ourselves more power. And I'm not saying devolve into McConnell-esque nihilism, mm-hmm. but on the things that we believe in and we think would help us politically, we have to focus on them because we're never – we're not going to be able to solve the problems that we care about, big or small without fixing the imbalance of political power. Well, the other part is one is the reliance on demographics. To me, they're, they're saying that we it doesn't matter eventually it will out itself because demographics will take over. I'm like, not if you can control it technologically. Yeah, and even— Not if you can control it technologically. And that to me, that's the where the miss was, was the ability to reach— One of the things I used to talk about is you don't have to have a hit movie. You just have to find your audience. Yeah. And I felt that way politically. If they find their audience, it doesn't matter— if you can't find your audience, yeah. even if you have a bigger audience. Like, there was this view, I think a lot of what drove some of the complacency in the 2016 election was this view that demography was destiny. Mm-hmm. And that misunderstood two things. One, it underestimated the impact of laws to reduce the power of mm-hmm. emergent demographic groups. But it also missed the fact that demography, that if you have a bunch of diverse progressives moving to certain states, that means they're moving out of other states. Right. And where everyone got it wrong was the belief was that North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, maybe Texas would become blue before Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, Wisconsin became red. Mm -hmm. And it moved faster in one direction than we thought. And that was a huge mistake. And there was also a view that that everyone believed in the Clinton campaign, at least at the outset, a lot of Obama people believed was that Barack Obama's performance with white voters— in 2012 was the bottom. That, w- that was the worst a Democrat would do. And that Hillary Clinton would have, even though there might be some drop-off in 2016 among African-American turnout for her that Obama had, it would be made up for by more white voters. But she actually did worse mm-hmm. than Obama. And what we were missing was it wasn't really about Obama so much as it was about a much bigger thing that was pulling the demographic, sort of the demographic polarization in, you know, in that direction. So what do, what do we do? Because there was this period during the Reagan administration, I'm old enough to remember, it was a little like this. It was a lot like this, actually. People thought it was hopeless. And then you moved into eight years of Clinton, you know what I mean, pretty quickly. And progressiveness, a mm-hmm. lot of change, a lot of big changes in this country, maybe too many too quickly. Mm-hmm. What is the key parts of untrumping? Behaving like them? or No, it's 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 not behaving like them. It is, give me the five as we finish up. We've sure. got five minutes. So, so. I would, like, the, the things Democrats have to do is they have to make political structural reform the centerpiece of the party. And so that means not just undoing voter suppression laws, it means voter expansion. 
right? We have to look aggressively at expanding to recently incarcerated people who pay their debts to society. It is the most aggressive version of automatic voter registration, which could be done nationally if we mm-hmm. did it, if not at the state level. Vote by mail everywhere. So voter expansion. Second, undoing gerrymandering. And that, which involves winning races at the state and local level. Which Eric Holder is working on. There's it was Eric Holder is, mm-hmm. and there are a bunch of other groups who were doing mm-hmm. it, and there's real progress there. Um, well, it seems to be winning in courts right now. It is, although the Supreme Court has reduced the ability to challenge right. it in That's courts. Right. And so we're going to have to we're gonna have to win races, and this is the election where it happens. And if we don't do it in 2020, we're going to have to wait another 10 years to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, you saw it in the 2018 election where— Democrats won the popular vote by seven points, which is more than the Republicans won it by in 2010, yet we won 23 fewer seats mm-hmm. because of gerrymandering. Campaign finance reform, like people, one of the most important things that has sparked this Republican sort of conservative ascendance. Citizen United. Citizens United happening in January of 2010. Now, that is not something that can be undone at the with in Congress, but we can we obviously constitutional amendments out very challenging, but Democrats should push more aggressively for it, and mm-hmm. we should be passing it in Congress to make ourselves a champion of it. We have to be more aggressive with the law if we have power with the laws we have that bring transparency to these dark money groups. That mm-hmm. be, a president can do something Obama decided not to do, which I think was ultimately a mistake, which is require federal contractors to disclose political contributions. Mm-hmm. To because that's a sure. huge that it, it makes it sort of an industry leader with things we can do at the state level there. You know, the courts, I think, is the big one here. Because even if you do everything else right, the statistic that keeps me up at night is that when Brett Kavanaugh is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's age today, my daughter will be 32. Mm-hmm. She turns two in May. Right. So this is what we are – even if we did everything else right, the Republicans will have this conservative veto over progressive policies. Mm-hmm. We could get rid of the filibuster. We could add make D.C. a state. We could do all these things. Passed Medicare for All, struck down by a 6-3 conservative majority. And there's nothing that is going to change that if we just rely on the normal process. So I am someone who believes Democrats should walk out – if we had the White House and the Senate, walk out of the inauguration, eliminate the filibuster, make D.C. a state, and add two Supreme Court justices. Mm-hmm. Which is a Pete Buttigieg idea. Pete Buttigieg is one of the first people who mm-hmm. pushed for this. I think there are some other things we should do in terms of term limits in the long run, but we we need to – rebalance the scales from what Mitch McConnell did in 2016 with the Merrick Garland pick. And I think that would be a fundamental game changer. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's this ancillary political benefit of it, which is Republicans have been able to make their voters care about the courts, which means they turn out in Senate midterms. We have not been able to do that. Mm -hmm. And we have to do that. And I think if we were to embrace an aggressive court reform agenda, it would give ourselves the opportunity to do that, would focus more attention Mm -hmm. on the courts. Because under the current system— is unsustainable for progressive policy goals. All right. So going forward, we one more minute. How do you look at this next election? Do you think there's a possibility of beating Donald Trump? I think most people think no. Many no, people think no. I, I think Donald Trump is has advantages. Incumbents usually win. Incumbents and strong economies usually win. But he is very beatable. Mm-hmm. We have to. We need why? A, because he he is someone who still is historically unpopular. All of his policies are less popular. All of his, his sort of policy performances are, are underwater. Mm-hmm. He won by 70,000 votes over three states. Everything that went wrong for Democrats could have go, that could have gone wrong went wrong in 2016. So the opportunity is there. But it's going to require someone who can do 
like we're having this false choice discussion about mm-hmm. should we turn out more mm-hmm. Democratic voters? Should we persuade these other voters? And the math of the Electoral College is such is that you have to do – you need a candidate who can do three things well enough to mm-hmm. get 200 electoral votes. One is turn out new voters and the 4 million Obama 2012 voters who not turn out in 2016. Two, you have to persuade some number of these Obama-Trump voters – and I include the people who voted for Obama and Trump and then also mm-hmm. the people who voted for Obama and Gary Johnson, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of who couldn't – who don't – they disapprove of Trump, but they just couldn't get there right. for Hillary Clinton. Can you get those people? Mm-hmm. And the third group that we don't think about enough is you have to hold on to these suburban Romney-Clinton voters. Romney 2012, Hillary Clinton 2016. Many of them voted for a Democrat in 2018 for Congress. But we're going to have to keep enough of them if we're going to have any chance at Pennsylvania, Michigan – Wisconsin, and Arizona. And so you you have to do those three things. Those things are all doable. Donald Trump has many flaws as a candidate. He has a lack of discipline that can be exploited. He has wasted a lot of time where he could be driving a core economic message that could help him by getting distracted by a million things. Deborah Messing's a pain in the ass. Yeah, that's right, Deborah Messing. (laughs) I like her. She's a a good tweeter. She's a great tweeter. Uh, And she may be our secret weapon if she can keep getting (laughs) Trump upset. keep all the women attacking him. (laughs) That's right. And he reacts to them. It would be very funny. Anyway, I recommend anyone read it. It's going to be really fascinating because I think nobody, unfortunately, we live in a reality show. No one knows how the story's going to end. And that's what's shocking, you know, kind of fascinating because most people, these things are inevitable. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. His book is called Untrumping America, A Plan to make America a democracy again. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Dan, you are all over online. Where can people best find you uh, and the book? Twitter at Dan Pfeiffer, and you can find the book at untrumpingamerica.com. Oh, nice. Well done. If you uh, like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.